Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Jen Rosenbaum is a portrait photographer, author, podcaster, and breast cancer survivor. Through her work, she is helping women celebrate their unique femininity and helping breast cancer patients and survivors put their lives back together after cancer. Jen, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored. Well, I'm honored and I also appreciate your patience with the technical difficulties. <laughs> so okay. thank you. Thank you so, so much. You look extremely young for the people listening to the podcast who can't see you. So I am even more curious about your story. Can you take us back to the very beginning? Yes. Thank you. You just made my day. I am not that young. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> so yeah. So back in 2017, I was diagnosed July, 2017 with invasive lobular carcinoma. What happened was um, in January of 2017, I had a mammogram sonogram and it was my third in a year because the year before I had turned 40. So I had um, one, when I turned 40, I had another one, six months later, they had seen some calcifications they were watching. I had another one in six months. They said, come back in six months. If it's all good, then you can go a year. When I went back in that six months, they saw some cysts on the left side. So they said, you know what, just come back in six months to be sure. So that was January, 2017. Sometime between January 17 and July, 2017, I took a picture of myself. I took a selfie and I saw a, a shadow on my chest that I probably never would have noticed if I wasn't a photographer, which is ironic. And I started feeling around and I felt what felt like a muscle, like a swollen muscle almost. And I didn't really know what it was. I have no history of breast cancer. I had, you know, I was like, in my family, obviously. And, and I was like, you know, I'll just wait. I have an appointment in July. Wasn't a lymph node. I mean, where was this? <clears throat> no, what it was, was actually the invasive lobular carcinoma. But this is the thing with, you know, we're taught in a society that we should feel for a lump, mm -hmm. but invasive lobular carcinoma does not feel like a lump. It doesn't, it's missing a protein that binds it. So what happens is it starts growing through the lobules and it actually feels almost like a swollen muscle. They say, people say that all the time. Like I had sort of this mass, I didn't know what it was, but it wasn't a lump. So I didn't worry about it. I went to go get my cyst check out. The doctor said, your cysts look fine. And I said, oh, you know what? Before I leave, I mean, it was like, a, it was like so far out of my mind. I said, I have this thing over here. I don't know what it is. Can you just take a look at it? So they start pressing down with the sonogram machine. Nothing comes up. Nothing comes up. All of a sudden she presses really hard and this giant football sized black hole shows up on the screen. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> you know? And she's like, I'm going to go get the doctor. He biopsied me on the spot. He put a titanium marker in that spot and did a mammogram. It did not show up on the mammogram at all. It turned out I had a seven centimeter mass and another three centimeter mass underneath it. And it did not show at all on a mammogram. I just got chills. I mean, mm -hmm. really, I just got chills. Wow. Yeah. Only about a quarter of it showed up on the sonogram uh, and only about a quarter of it showed up on the MRI, which is crazy. When I had my mastectomies a few weeks later, my surgeon said your breast was littered with cancer. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I had uh, bilateral mastectomies two days before my 42nd birthday and eight rounds of CMF chemotherapy, which I used a cold cap for those that can see this. I have long hair and everyone's always like, how? <laughs> like I did use a cold cap. I had implant reconstruction. So I had four surgeries for that. And then um, I just had my ovaries removed last week. Whoa. Okay. That's a lot. Okay. We yeah. got to like dissect all of this. Yeah, it's a lot. Of a better word. So tell us a little bit more about this very specific type of cancer, this solid tumor carcinoma and how it was different. And also you know, how difficult was it or not difficult to make that decision to have that bilateral mastectomy? I can't give you specifics and, and um, statistics off the top of my head, but what I can tell you is that invasive lobular is not as common as ductal carcinoma and that um, only a certain percentage of it, I believe, is invasive. And it is the cancer that the breast cancer that people die from more often because it's very sneaky and it doesn't feel like a lump. And if it was in the bulk of my breast, I probably wouldn't have ever known that I had it. Um, I only knew because it was high up and I could feel it. And it was in an area like right, almost not right below, but between my collarbone and the top part of my breast, that's where it was. So I could see it, I could feel it. And I'm very grateful for that because if it was lower, I wouldn't have known. So it does have a higher death rate because of that. So that I want to make people aware of. I think that's a really big part of my advocacy is self-exams. And um, just if you feel anything unusual to let your doctor know, because I mean, the doctors, the first question any doctor asks with breast cancer, what is the first question? Do you have a family history? Yep. Well, only 10 to 15% of women that have cancer, breast cancer, have a family history. So it's a very misleading comfort that we have in, well, I don't have family history, so I don't need to check my breasts. I, I don't even have history of cancer in my family. I was the first person really to get cancer in my whole family. It's crazy. So, and I was the one, you know, doing the yoga, drinking the green juice, like the whole thing. Right. So if you had to pick somebody to have cancer in my family, I would have been the last choice. I rested on that comfort, you know? And so I, I really like to tell women, you really can't, you can't rest on that comfort at all. The second part of your question about the mastectomies, mm -hmm. this is, this is super interesting because up until that point in my life, you go into the doctor and you say, I have strep throat and they give you amoxicillin and, you know, or I have a sinus infection and you get an antibiotic and they say, this is what you do for that. You know, when you walk in and you say, I have breast cancer, they say, well, here are your options. Let's lay it out on the table for you. And you say, what do you mean here are my options? So my doctor said, well, you can have bilateral mastectomies. You can have a unilateral mastectomy. You can have a lumpectomy and radiation. Which one would you like? And I was like, well, wait a minute, you're the doctor. <laughs> tell me which one I would like, you know? And she said to me, I can't tell you, I can't make that decision for you. And I said to her, so we played a little game. So I said to her, well, what if I told you I wanted a bilateral mastectomy? And she said, I would tell you that's the right choice. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. It's like, it's like, we've gone from this very paternalistic very old school doctors, everything doctor knows all right from the 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s to the other way. The pendulum has just swung the other way, but all decisions are on you. But here's the thing that's a liability, right? And that's it's there's so many decisions in cancer that we have to make. And we're in a panic state. We're in survival mode. We're like, you know, how can I make these decisions? I'm freaking out. And 
they don't know the answer. That's, that's the thing you go. This is the first time I had ever gone to a doctor where the doctor didn't know the answer because we're just guinea pigs. So they can pump you up with medication. They can tell you statistically what works or what they recommend, but they can't say to you, if you do this, you will never get cancer again, or you won't die or you won't, you know, whatever it is. So they want you to have some sort of skin in the game as far as the decision-making is concerned. And it's really hard because you're not even of your right mind and you feel rushed and you feel scared. And I know I did the right thing. Let me put it that way. When they, when they removed my breast, they found, like I said, my right breast was littered with cancer. My left breast had LCIS, which is lobular carcinoma in situ. Now that's not something that's detectable by a mammogram or a sonogram. It's not something that they treat as cancer, like they would with ductal carcinoma in situ, but it's certainly an indication that cancer is probably coming. So when I found that out, I was very happy. I had bilateral mastectomies. Was it, was anyone with you at all during that time? Yeah. I mean, was, did you have a partner or a sibling, a parent, or just friend, like someone there with you, supporting you going to appointments with you? I mostly did it on my own. I will, I will tell you this. I was married at the time. <clears throat> I am currently in a divorce. You find out when you go through something stressful like this, what people can handle. Oh yeah. hundred yeah. percent. So I handled it. I handled it. I made the appointments. I did the research. I, I did it all. And, and it's interesting that you ask about, was anybody with you? Because what happened was I started and we might be like jumping ahead a little bit here, but I started and I, and I'm, I'm still sort of in this place going to a lot of appointments on my own because I couldn't handle managing other people's emotions on top of my own, where my husband at the time maybe couldn't handle it the way I needed it to be handled. And this isn't even bashing him. It's just p- certain people are capable of certain things and others are not, you know, this right. was not his forte. If I took somebody like my mother, for example, it was very emotional for her, very difficult for her. And then I found I, we were leaving appointments and I'm comforting her (laughs) fine, but it's like, no, I need this for me right now. You know? So I just had a biopsy recently actually on my uterus. And I was like, I need, I I need to go by myself. I need to, I had like a little trauma response to it. I knew that that was going to happen, you know, or just certain appointments where I feel like are not super, shouldn't be super emotional. If I brought somebody else it would make it a big deal. So I want to say, uh, the answer to the question is I handled most of it on my own. I really did handle most of it on my own. I understand about handling other people's emotions. And maybe when I stop recording, I'll tell you a little story when it comes to husbands and what they can handle. Wow. So you did, you mentioned you did the cool cap Mm -hmm. and I only know one other person that did that. And again, for people who are listening, you have gorgeous hair. I mean, thank gorgeous you. long. Thank you, thank She's got like this, what appears to be naturally wavy hair. And just like, <laughs> it's nothing um, natural about it. My love, <laughs> not the so, color, not the wave, nothing. <laughs> yes, but it's still, you can get the wave. So I'm very impressed by that. I do have wavy hair. It's just, yeah. this is a little amped up today. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, when I was a little girl, I could wash my hair, not put a comb through it and it would dry stick straight. Me just, too. Yeah. I was an eighties kid and I had seventies hair. It was really frustrating. Me too. I had like stick straight hair. Now it's like wavy. It's like, yeah. you know, it changed when you reach puberty for me, when I had kids and it changed again through chemotherapy, even though I didn't lose my hair, my hair changed for sure. Tell us about that. How did your hair change? And, and also kind of explain the cool cap because that's a huge investment in money and time. 
Oh, well, let me talk about that first, um, because people ask me a lot. Can you tell me about it? Did it work? Would you recommend it? It's so funny because um, I get it's like almost like a, a PTSD reaction. I feel nauseous when I talk about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that, that yeah. feeling of what it felt like when I had it comes back. So the cold cap is I had my treatment through Sloan uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. So they have a system there called Dignicap. At least they did back then. I don't know what's going on now. Essentially you go in, you need to sit with it for a half an hour before your chemo starts. So you go in early, you wet your hair down and then they put this, cap on you. It's almost like a, it's like a silicone cap. I guess it has tubes in it and they tighten it really hard. I think they've changed it a little bit over the years because it was so uncomfortable, but it would be like strapped under your chin, really tight to your head. Then they would put another thing over it, almost like um, it's the material of like what a wetsuit would be. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the name of that material is, but they would strap that over. And in the beginning, what they used to do is they used to put maxi pads in between because (laughs) there were certain places where the silicone cap wouldn't really like fit right to your head, like the back of your neck, for example, like where your head and your neck meet, you know, it's like kind of sloped. So they'd put a maxi pad there. So when they put the other thing over it, it was like really on your skin. Multiple uses for the maxi pad. (laughs) I was like, as if this isn't all mortifying enough, you're putting maxi pads on my head. Like what is happening here? And then they would strap it. It was really tight. Like you couldn't, it would like hurt my jaw. I couldn't eat. I couldn't listen to any music because I couldn't have headphones in. And so what they would do is they would turn on the machine and this cold something or other, I don't know if it was water or some sort of chemical, something running through this silicone cap. And they say, it's going to feel like, I love when they tell you what it's going to feel like, like they've ever done it themselves. It's going to feel like brain freeze. And I'm like, yeah, brain freeze is not anywhere near the explanation of what it feels like. It's actually pretty brutally painful until you're numb, until it actually freezes your scalp enough that you're numb and you just don't feel it as much. The period between when they turn it on and you're numb is very difficult. It's like you have to, I had to really like close my eyes and meditate, like take myself out of that spot in the beginning of my chemo, I had eight rounds of chemo in the beginning. They would give me, um, the first time they're like, we'll give you an Ativan. I'm like, I don't need an Ativan. I'm fine. The second time they're like, we're going to give you an Ativan. And I was like, I'll take half an Ativan. It's okay. You know, by, by the fifth one, I was like, can you put the Ativan in the IV? <laughs> I'm just like, this is horrible. I can't deal with it. It's freezing your hair follicles. Is that what correct? it's doing is it's freezing your scalp and your follicles. So that this theory is that the capillaries close because they're so cold and that the chemo doesn't get to your capillaries, which means it saves your hair. Now, did it work? Yes. Did it save all of my hair? No. So I still lost a lot of hair. I have a ton of hair, as you can see. So nobody really noticed. Like if you didn't know me, you wouldn't have known that I lost hair. If you knew me, you would see it. It was, it was obvious. And in certain patches specifically in between the chemo sessions, you can't brush your hair. You can't really wash your hair. You can't curl it. You can't put heat on it. You can't dye it. You can't cut it. You can't put it in a ponytail. You can't wear a hat and you can't like do anything to disrupt your hair. So be prepared for like a long four months of the bad hair day, you know? Wow. No ponytail. I mean, no ponytail. You cannot put any pressure on your scalp. Nothing, nothing. So, um, somebody told me, a doctor told me recently that 
hair loss is not obvious until you lose 50%, at least 50% of your hair. So I always tell people, I think I lost 30 to 40% of my hair. Maybe it was closer to 50% because it was obvious to me. I felt it. I could see it, but the rest of the world didn't see it. That was important to me, not because I am so narcissistic that I have to look in the mirror and see, you know, beauty all the time. What was important to me was the money and the time and the aggravation spent was about a sense of control that you're taking my breasts. You're taking my life at the moment. You're taking my freedom. You're not going to have my hair too. Sorry. Like it's just not going to happen. So it is expensive. It's about at the time it was about $550 a session times eight. Um, I'm very it's grateful. It's actually that, better than I thought it would be. Yeah. I'm, I don't know what it is now, but I know back then it was that. And I mean, I'm very grateful. I had the money to spend on it. You have to also continue wearing the cold cap two hours after chemo. So when the chemo's done, you're still sitting there for two hours wearing it. And then you take it off and it's literally frozen to your head. There's icicles and everything. And then you go home and you're like, what did I just do to myself for the last six hours? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was very hard. It was very torturous. And I tell people when they ask me, would you do it again? I don't know. Mm. I don't know if I would. It made the whole process of chemo that much harder, actually. It made the process of, I think, healing easier because I could go out in the world and look normal, quote unquote. But also it was interesting because I think people treated me a little bit differently because I didn't lose my hair. They sort of made an assumption like, well, she's not that sick. Oh, sure. I bet. You know, and I had stage Mm -hmm. 2B cancer. I mean, I was... I didn't have, and not that there's any, you know, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's, I didn't have stage zero cancer, but you know, I had pretty advanced cancer. It was chemo really leveled me. And, um, but, but as long as you look good, (laughs) everyone thinks you're good. It's it's Instagram world, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. So you had chemo, you do the cool cap, no radiation. Is that correct? Did not have radiation. Talk to us about reconstruction. Yeah. So I had expanders put in at the time of my mastectomies. And so I lived with those for about nine months. They looked ridiculous. One was down here. One was up here. They were in my armpits. They didn't even live in the same zip code. It was ridiculous. (laughs) And it was hard for nine months to like get dressed and figure out like how to look normal. Um, It was, it was hard. So in March of 2018, I had my first reconstruction surgery and it looked horrible. It was horrible. And, um, you know, I had a very radical mastectomy. They took the um, tissue out all the way up to my collarbone because my cancer was so high. So I'm very hollow and the implants just, they look like hamburger buns. They were not in the right location. They were very uneven. They just didn't look good. Didn't feel good. Nothing about them was good. I went to my doctor and I said, look, I just don't think that this is right. I think that this could be better. And he wasn't really the nicest guy. So he said to me, be happy you're alive. This is as good as it gets. Oh God. What an asshole. What's worse about that is that I believed him because I didn't know any different. I was afraid to go somewhere else. I just was like, what do I do now? Like, what, what what are my options? I didn't know. You know, I just didn't know. I wasn't really at the time involved in the breast cancer community and I didn't have support like that. And I didn't really know. I kept seeing him and he was never nice. And one day I said to his nurse, you know, before he comes in, can you just ask him to be nice to me today? Like, I've just, I've had enough of this. I'm really tired. I don't feel great. And he's just mean all the time. I don't want him to be mean to me today. He came in and I asked him again, like, is this really as good as it gets? And he said, it's as good as it gets. And 
when he left, his nurse came in. She said to me, look off the record, go get a second opinion. And it was just the permission that I needed to say, oh, there's another option. Like I I have another option here. So I went to the front desk and I said, look, I, I need to see a different surgeon. So I saw a different surgeon, same place. I had reconstruction with him. That one came out even worse. My boobs were so low. They were like touching my belly button practically. I mean, it was horrible. They were not in the right place. It was super hollow on the top. And I was like, this is just not working. So uh, I had met a friend of mine, Susan, at a meditation retreat I did. And it's funny how cancer survivors find each other. We're like magnets to each other, even if you're not trying, right? So she's a breast cancer survivor. We found each other in the first like hour of the (laughs) the, uh, meditation retreat. And she was telling me how she had problems with her reconstruction, da, 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 da. And she used this other doctor and she was explaining the problems that she had. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm struggling with. So she said, I want you to see my doctor. He's in Great Neck. His name is Dr. Israeli. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to leave Sloan. And, you know, anyway, long story short, I went to see him and it was a completely different experience. And he looked, he took one look at me and he said, Jen, none of this is right. It needs to be completely undone and redone. It's a big job. And I think I can do it. And I said to him, well, let me tell you something. You got one shot because if I have to see another drain, as long as I live, I am just going to be done. Like I can't do this anymore. So in July, 2020, he redid my reconstruction. It was a huge improvement. And then in December of 2020, we did a revision just to kind of um, fix some things up. In my pocket was still a little bit hollow. So we had to put bigger implants in, um, but it was just a revision. It wasn't, you know, the whole thing all over again, but um, they look so much better now. And I really realized, and what I wish these other plastic surgeons would understand is that it's not about what we look like. It's about how we feel because, you know, look, I'm single. Who's seeing my boobs right now? Nobody, you know, I'm not, I'm not currently dating. I'm not, you know, I'm just like, you're not flashing on zoom. Nothing on Instagram. I am, but (laughs) that's another story. Regardless, it doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't matter if you're wearing a turtleneck sweater for the rest of your life. If you feel more complete and more whole, it makes it's mentally helps the healing process. Wow. And so the timing, first of all, you have brand new breasts. I mean, they're really new. They are new. How were you able to get those surgeries in 2020 during COVID? I was super lucky. Really? Super lucky. So my surgeon operates at many hospitals, but in addition, he operates at a surgical center here right by my house. So I was scheduled for these operations at the surgical center. So the surgical center didn't close like the hospitals did. So I was very lucky because if my surgery was at one of the hospitals, I wouldn't have had it. And honestly, I, both times I made it by the skin of my teeth because there was a lot of talk about like cutting back on certain surgeries and whatnot. And I just made, I mean, especially the one in July, it was like, I just made it under the gun for that. I happen to have been very lucky. You mentioned earlier, maybe before I hit record, I can't remember, but you mentioned that you have kids. Yes. How old were your kids and how did they handle seeing you go through this? That's a great question. My kids were in 2017, my kids were 12 and eight. So they were fairly young. Um, The ironic thing is that I was diagnosed with cancer while they were away at sleepaway camp which was a blessing and a curse because it gave me a little bit of time to like get my appointments together and figure it out. Unfortunately, I had to pick them up and say, and by the way, while you were gone, all of this happened, which is really 
scary for them, you know, and has made them a little insecure about going to camp. Oh, <laughs> I'm really sure yeah. about leaving you for any period of time. Yeah. Here's the, here's the, I'm going to tell you a really quick anecdotal story, but oh, when please. I went to pick up my son, my, my kids from camp, my son was wearing this like um, thing around his neck. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, oh, we had a, uh, we send them every year to camp with some money to donate to different charities. So they have a little um, charity fair. So the different charities come and they learn about different charities and they get to decide where they want to donate their money to. So it's called Maddie Mao. It's make a difference in your own way. So he said, oh, at the Maddie Mao fair, they, the charity I gave all my money to is giving these away. And I was, I look closer at it and it's a Susan G. Komen scarf. And he's like, I learned all about breast cancer and I wanted, that's where I donated all of my money. And I was like, whoa. So we came home and I explained to them that I was diagnosed with breast cancer and that, and they were fine with it until I said to them, I'm going to need surgery and you're going to need to help. (laughs) They were like, nah, you know, but they were fine until I told them I needed to have surgery. Cause I don't think they've really ever seen their mother vulnerable. And that part of it was really, really hard. And it's still hard to manage as I sit here recovering from surgery. Now, my days that were my worst days were the hardest on the kids. You know, my daughter, like everybody would always say, Oh, are your kids helping you? And I'm like, that's not how this works on the days where I was leveled. My kids would say to me, what's for dinner. I, can you go get me water? Can you drive me here? Can you go there? And I would be like, you guys, I can't. But what I realized was they didn't really care about the food or the water or the ride. They just wanted me to be normal. They just wanted me to be mommy so that they didn't have to be scared. Yeah. So on the days that I was leveled, I would send them to school and I would just lay on the couch all day and not do anything. And then when they came home, I would push myself to do as much as I could with them to give them the security again, managing other people's emotions. That's just how it is. I would do what I could at the same time. I would say to them, like, look, I, I can't today, or I can't do that. Or, you know, mommy Wednesday, it was always Wednesdays that I felt like Wednesday's coming. So, you know, we have to prepare for it or, you know, next week I don't have chemo, so I can help you with whatever you need, but this week is going to be hard for me. So it's hard. I mean, I've had six surgeries in the past four years, like big surgeries too, not little, you know, not little things like big surgeries. So it's hard on them. I have a lot of guilt like a lot of mommy guilt about putting them through all of this, but I try to remind myself that it's going to make them more empathetic, understanding adults and that this is life. We can't control what happens when we can only make the best of it. And they are now what? 12 and 16. Yes. Can you tell by all the gray hair? (laughs) Uh, Also, it, it brings up an interesting point. My daughter was almost 13 So here she is going through puberty, getting Mm. breasts, and I'm taking mine off. And her fear was real. You know, she would say to me, is this something I'm going to have to worry about? And I can't say to her, no, you know, I have to say to her, yes, it is something you're going to have to worry about. We're going to have to be very vigilant, vigilant, hello, vigilant, (laughs) chemo brain moment. We're going to be very vigilant about your breast health. And, you know, my mother-in-law is also a cancer, breast cancer survivor. So now she, where I had no family history, she has it on both sides now and, and close relatives. So, you know, we're going to have to really stay on top of it. And so that's a reality for her. I want to know before I, I ask some other questions, where does this strong, I'll get it done mentality come from? Where does that come from? I just think my parents, my parents are both like that. My parents, um, not that it has anything to do with cancer, but when I was younger, my father was in a family business and it didn't work out and they had to start a business on their own. 
And they started it in the basement of my house. And I saw them from the age of seven fight for what they wanted in life and work hard and, and never look at things as failures and always look at them as like an opportunity to grow and change. And, you know, they didn't really ever sulk. Like they were just always like, okay, this isn't working. What do we need to do now? What do we, how do we handle this? What's the solution to this problem versus sitting in the problem? And I think I just through osmosis, you know, and watching all of that, just kind of learned that. I don't know, because when people say to me, how are you so strong? How are you so resilient? How do you stay positive? It's hard for me to answer that because I don't feel as if I am always positive. I, I definitely struggle and I definitely suffer, but I've learned to embrace the suffering and learn from it and, and look at it as like a welcoming, you know, like I put the welcome mat out and go, okay, I know that this is going to be hard, but this is my opportunity for growth. It's happening right now. And I need to welcome it in and go through it. And I think that because I just don't know any other way, I don't find it to be so interesting. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So a lot of times when people ask me that, I'm like, I don't understand. Like, what are the other ways of doing it? Because I don't do it other ways. And I, I know people say to me, Oh, if I got cancer, I'd curl up in a ball and cry. I'm like, you don't know what you would do. You don't know what you're capable of doing until you're faced with it, you know? And I just think so much of, of what we do and feel and think is a choice. Are you the oldest or an only child? I'm the oldest. Yeah. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. I mean, it's not true all the time, but if you're the oldest, uh, you are put in that role at a very young age. Yeah. Typically you just are like, you know, you're in charge. Yeah. Do people come to you for advice? Oh my gosh. Every day. (laughs) Every day. I mean, you know, I have a, I have a very nice Instagram presence where I do a lot of breast cancer advocacy. I have a YouTube channel where I talk about my real life experiences with breast cancer every day. People say to me, should I do this? Should I do that? What do, what do you think of this? And I, you know, I keep saying, I'm not a doctor. I'm just not a doctor. What I think is you need to ask your doctor, but when people come to me with mentality questions, how do I stay positive? How do I look at this differently? How do I get out of my own way? How do I put the fear aside that I can help them with? No, I'm sure. I'm sure you do. There's a great book called the how I think it's how to happiness. Mm. And it's this theory. These uh, sociologists wrote it that 60% of your happiness set point is actually genetic. Like you're just born, you know, mm-hmm. with, with a certain set point yeah. and then 20% is totally out of your control. You know, there's just, there are, there is chaos things happen like cancer that you cannot control. And then the other 20% is your choice. Yeah. So between your default set point that you were born with and the 20% that is your choice, you can control your happiness. Yeah. You do have some say in what you do and how you react to it. For Um, sure. And if anybody like, you know, if you keep a gratitude list, or even if you take like a moment every day where you're like, you know what, i I'm just so grateful that I'm healthy enough or that I have the means to pay my medical bills or that I, you know, have food on my table or that today I don't have to hook myself up to chemotherapy or whatever the little, or I'm just grateful that the sun's out today. So I get some vitamin D and happiness, you know, (laughs) whatever it might be. It's like these, it's hard to feel gratitude and what we would consider, um, difficult. I don't, I was going to call them bad emotions, but I don't like to label things good or bad. So difficult emotions at the same time. Although I, I believe that a lot of these emotions do exist at the same time. Simultaneous emotions of like joy and sadness are very common, but I think that 
gratitude really helps us get to a different place of happiness. It changes the brain in that way. Yeah, I agree. I keep a gratitude journal and there, and there are some days, like you just said, there's some days where I'm grateful. I can breathe. <laughs> so grateful that I'm just here writing in this journal and everything else sucked today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, and that's okay. And I think part of that is like, when everybody says to me, like, how do you stay so positive? I think what part of the key to that is I embrace my negative days. I embrace my sadness. And instead of fighting it, because if you fight it, it's going to stick around longer. If you embrace it and you say, you know what, today, for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to cry or the next day I'm going to feel sad, but then I'm going to try to let it go. Like I don't get stuck in it, but I certainly feel it, but then I let it go. Yeah. You move through it. Nothing is permanent, not good emotions, not bad emotions, nothing. I should, like I said, I don't like to say good or bad, but you know what I mean? Like the positive, negative, whatever, but (laughs) none of the, none of the emotions you ever feel are permanent. That is amazing. That's great advice too. You mentioned your worst moment. Mm. What was your best moment? My best moment through cancer. My best moment, I'll tell you, when I really think about it, was the first time I shared a post-mastectomy photo, topless. And it was one of my hardest moments. You know, as a photographer, I knew I wanted to journal this whole thing, if not for anybody else, just myself and my children, maybe at some point. So I took pictures from the minute that this happened till this day, I'm still taking pictures. When I was first going through treatment, I started writing some articles for a healthcare system around here. And I sent them some photos to go along with the article. And I sent them a selfie that I took in the mirror about four or five days after my um, mastectomy, maybe it was a week, wearing jeans, nothing on top. I sent it to them. So I knew that they were probably going to use it. Well, when I looked at the proof of the article and I saw it there, I panicked. And I was like, oh my God, everybody's going to see what I look like. And I wasn't worried about the world seeing it. I was worried about my dad seeing it. I was worried about my neighbor seeing it. I was worried about my neighbor's husband seeing it. You know, like I I was worried about my best friend's, you know, cousin seeing it. It was like, you know, and I was really scared. And, you know, my mom, my it's very funny because I come from a very like traditional conservative family. And my mom, and I'm a boudoir photographer and I'm like constantly like taking selfies and posting them on Instagram and all that. But my, my mom said to me at one point, do me a favor when this is all done, don't go showing your boobies all over the internet. And I said to her, it's just like, you don't know me at all, you know, (laughs) come on. But I knew I had like a moment, you know, so I called my parents and I said to them, look, I want to, I want to tell you something. This is very hard for me, but I'm going to publish this picture. And I want you to know, I'm not asking your permission, but I'm letting you know, so that this way you're not surprised and that, you know, you are welcome to have any feelings about it that you want but I believe that this is really important for me to do to help other women. And this is going to save other women's lives. And they said to me, I'm very proud of you and we support you. So I did it and it was terrifying and it freed me in so many ways. Would you be sure to share the article? So I can, yeah. yeah, Yeah. And I mean, now I'm, you know, on Instagram, I mean, if you don't see my boobs once a week, it's like, as if I don't exist, you know, (laughs) like now I put it out there all the time, but the truth, the truth is that it's, I've shared a lot of really raw photos, photos where I have drains coming out, photos of bruises, photos of, I mean, I shared the photo of what I look like when I woke up from my mastectomy. Uh, You know, I opened my bra and I took a picture. So, I mean, I've shared a lot of really, really vulnerable raw photos, but 
I think it's really important as part of my mission to normalize what a breast cancer body looks like because we don't know what to expect and it's scary. I would rather see a picture that's a little scary and know what to expect than to make it up in my mind is going to be a thousand times worse. That moment, I would say, although it felt like a hard moment at the time was one of my best moments because it really freed me to do a lot more work in that area. And I'm just going to scroll to your Instagram after our interviews over. (laughs) (laughs) What is the one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? I wish I had known I had more choices and that I had more time to make choices. So, you know, that week between diagnosis and prognosis is like the longest week of your life. And it's like, you're like, am I going to die? Or is this nothing? You know, I, I don't, I know what's happening here. And because of that and the panic and the survival mode, I mean, I saw my doctor, I think it was like July 19th and I had mastectomies August 2nd. So, and she wanted to do it the week after I was like, Whoa, can I have like two weeks? <laughs> you know, like, That's fast. That's extremely fast. Extremely yeah. fast. And I wish I had explored more information about reconstruction, not just mastectomy. It's like, I thought, I don't care. Just get rid of the cancer and I'll decide later. And what I know now is that really to have really good reconstruction from the beginning, you have to address it at the same time as the mastectomy is meaning that I probably should have found a plastic surgeon first who then recommended me to a breast surgeon, but I didn't know that that's the order it needed to go. And I know that now. And I wish I had known that then. I love that. That's great advice too. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Oh, God, that is such a big question because the system is so messed up. I mean, I had, I would say this, that it's, look, my, I had, I had decent enough insurance. They covered a lot of things. They didn't cover a lot of things also. Like I had an an instance where I had a lump in my breast about six months after my mastectomies and I had a sonogram and my insurance company wouldn't cover it because they said it was not medically necessary. And I was like, what is not more medically necessary than a breast cancer survivor with a lump in her breast getting that checked out? Like what qualifies as medically necessary? Wow. I would say that The biggest travesty that I see, and again, I'm very lucky that I had the means to pay for all of this, is that a lot of women, especially single women, go into bankruptcy after their cancer treatments. And that's a travesty that we're that we're leaving women behind. And it's not only, you know, we're saving their lives, but we're ruining their lives at the same time. So I would say I would like to see more support in that area. I agree with you. You are a really powerful force, and I hope you know that. Thank you. I I really appreciate you saying that because there are times that I know it and I feel it. And there are times that I don't, you know, and so I really appreciate the reminder. Oh yeah, of course. Are you ready to lighten it up with the Thriver Rapid Fire? Okay, let's go. I didn't read them beforehand. So you get real honest answers. Oh, good. I love it. I love it. Well, even when people prep, like they still kind of stress out. It's like, (laughs) just have fun. Beach, desert, or mountains. Oh, okay. Is it wrong to want to sit at the beach and look at the mountains? Is that, where no, is that possible? No, that is Southern coast, Oregon. Okay. Well, one I'll of, come visit because one of my favorite places. Yeah. I love the beach. Um, but mountains, there's something about mountains that are so spectacular. Look it up. Southern coast, Oregon. Okay, cool. <laughs> beach boys, Beatles, or rolling stones. I mean, I grew up with the Beatles. My parents are huge Beatles fans. So rolling stones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My dad loves the Rolling Stones. Oh my gosh. Uh, What is one word that best describes you? Resilient. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Wow. That's a good one. I think we should just do another one bites the dust because that's my sense of humor. (laughs) By Queen? 
Yes. Love it. Uh, the last meal you want to eat? Pizza from New York. I mean, only New York pizza. <laughs> and the last person or people you'll see? Uh, my kids, for sure. I mean. And last words you will speak. Oh, man, you're making me emotional right now. I think that the most important thing, and I talk about this in my book, The Deathbed Principle, um, making decisions backwards versus forwards. In other words, like we make decisions forward. I know this is supposed to be a short answer. Is it okay if I give you a long yeah, answer? Yeah, of course. Okay. I know we're supposed to live our life. We're taught to live our lives forward, right? Like we're going to go to school. We're going to go to college. We're going to get a job. We're going to get married. We'll have kids, whatever the path might be. We're, we're taught to look forward, look forward, retirement, save for retirement. I try to make decisions backwards. Now, when I'm laying on my deathbed, how am I going to feel about a decision that I made today? Where am I going to stand? So my prayer, not just for myself, sorry, this is so emotional, not just for myself, but for my children, I want them to see that I went in peace because I did everything that I needed to do. And that if I don't go to another country or get on an airplane again, or eat in another exotic place or do any of these things that my children know that I love them with all of my heart and soul, and that I have no regrets in anything that I did in life, you know, and I want them to live that way too. So I hope that when the time comes, my last words don't have to be like, I'm sorry, or I didn't mean it, or they're just going to be, I love you. Sorry. It's so emotional. No, no, it's okay. Thank you for being so vulnerable. Aside from cancer, you, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I definitely want you to mention how people could get in touch with you and your book. Yeah. Okay. So shout out to the caregivers out there because <clears throat> about a year after I had cancer, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and I took care of him. He's, he's good now. Thank God. But, um, knocking wood, but I learned, and it was almost a gift for me. I learned how much harder it is to be a caregiver than the patient. So I just want to shout out all the caregivers out there. Thank you for everything that you do for all of us. Cause we're pains in the asses. <laughs> Well, the patient uh, coming from a caregiver, the patient has to stay focused on just getting well, right? Correct. Correct. Right. Okay. So, um, a resource. So, I mean, if it's not too ridiculous, I would love to mention, let me mention my book first, and then we'll talk about that. So my book is called, um, what the fuck just happened? A survivor's guide to life after breast cancer. Sorry for the French, but I mean, there's no other way I know how to describe it. You know, for me, part of my mission on this planet is to help women after cancer, because we go through cancer and we all assume that that's the difficult part of the journey, but it's actually not it's when you're done with treatment and you have to assimilate back into your life and you're like, what the F just happened to me? And everybody else is ready to carry on. And that's one thing, like the caregivers are like, okay, we're done. And we're, you know, everything's good now. And, and you're just starting to process what's going on. And you're a different person, whether you realize you are or not. And now you're trying to fit back into the hole that you left before and you're a different shape and it's just not going to work. So that's, that's why I wrote the book, you know, what, what, Theft just happened. Survivor's Guide to Life After Breast Cancer. Because I'm giving people tips and tricks that I use to assimilate back into my life. And by the way, I'm still changing. I mean, like I said, I'm going through a divorce. I'm still cleaning up the perspective shift. Like the the life that my that I want to have post cancer is still forming, even four years later. I would say that this book is good for survivors and also good for 
supporters because they can understand a little bit more about what, how we feel. I have a Facebook group for that, and I will be coming out hopefully by the turn of the year with some courses and whatnot for, and support systems for women that are assimilating back into their real lives and finding their new normal. So I'm going to recommend myself as one of the good. um, Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's so many, the breasties is amazing. If anybody out there is familiar with the breasties, it's like a group of amazing women that just do amazing things for, for especially younger women that, because uh, so many young women are being diagnosed with cancer and they just need support and we, and we need love and nobody can understand you like another survivor. So um, to just find community wherever that may be, but to be careful because there's a lot of things like on Facebook and whatnot that are super negative and really scary. So for me, you know, my Facebook group is called Life After Breast Cancer with Jen Rosenbaum and I'm in trying to formulate and cultivate a happy, positive place where even when people struggle we can say, okay, let's help each other through this and let's not, you know, ruminate on the fear and whatnot. And so we will make sure we put a link to your book, to your Instagram, to that Facebook group. Yeah. I also have a new podcast coming out. I think, yeah, it's going to be about two weeks. It's going to be called life after breast cancer, the life after breast cancer podcast with Jen Rosenbaum. I don't really have guests on there, but more so co-hosts where we just talk about the different topics that we deal with things. Like I just did one on toxic positivity and the stupid things that people say. I would love to hear that. Yeah. It's a good one. If you're looking for a co-host, if you're looking for other breast cancer survivors, I'm sure you have a long list, but I can definitely introduce you to people So, cool. with, without a doubt. I'm thinking of one person in particular, the title of her book is chemo pissed me off. Oh, it's so <laughs> great. I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> oh, Jen, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. And I hope it's okay that I kind of laughed and almost cried with you the whole way through. Yeah, I hope so. Because, you know, when we share emotions, it it connects us. And I think that that's, thank you for sharing in that with me. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.